Hello, it's John Dennis on Wednesday the 6th of January. Today, yes, you guessed it, snow. You know, if we could only get a snow plough down on a tractor or something like that, we'd be fine to get out to the main road. Also today, providing the snow melts, the 20-year plan to get Britain to produce and consume sustainable food. The real solution to, to an industry that's become too dominant is to break it up, but I doubt whoever wins the election is going to uh, do that. Eight years after the invasion, US leaders bemoan the state of intelligence gathering in Afghanistan and counting the animals at London Zoo. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk But first, our top story. Britain is experiencing its longest spell of cold weather for almost 30 years. Severe weather warnings have been issued by the Met Office for much of the UK. With severe delays and cancellations affecting passengers on road and rail, the cold snap is expected to continue for more than a week. Martin Wainwright is in Leeds, where, like many people, he's snowed in. I'm in the same boat, or maybe I should say the same sledge as a lot of people in the north of England and Scotland, uh, and who knows, by today, maybe in the south of England as well, in that the side road to my house is currently impassable, has been all day, it's early afternoon now, and uh, I'm not going to be able to get out by car. And also, like a lot of people, I've got a dependent relative, in this case my mum, and I'd promised to stock her up today with supplies thinking that I'd be able to just go down to the supermarket and fill up and do that so instead I've got to walk and uh, that's about between three and four miles through the snow my wife and I were just discussing how people say oh walking over there goodness but it's not so long since that was a fairly normal thing to do and we've all become very car dependent I don't know if I'm going to feel the same when I've got two carrier bags of stuff from the shops but We'll see. I've just come into our nearest shops and come across a couple of gents who are from Headshaw's contractors to Leeds City Council and they're refilling grit bins. Who, who uses the grit bins? Is it, is it, I mean, can anybody or is it, is it? Just residents up and down the street, you know. I didn't realise that. Yeah. So how, how have you got on today? I mean, I saw your lorry inching down this hill. It's a very steep hill you're on. Oh, terrible, isn't it? A couple of times. Have you? Yeah. It's very good of you to be doing that this. way out, but... Oh, you finished now, haven't you? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, great. Well, thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, all right. Bye. Right. So that's the council managing to keep uh, the grit on the road. It's quite interesting, actually. I, I've noticed um, the old tradition of sweeping the bit in front of your house is much less the thing these days than it used to be. Well, having said that, I can see a gentleman here with a snow shovel. Just going to ask him what he's up to. Oh yeah, I was just talking to the grit men down there and saying that there doesn't seem so much doing what you're doing these days. No, there isn't. We've been here 35 years now. Yes. And in, when we had the really bad winters when we first moved here, everybody came out with the shovels. It's funny they don't, isn't it? I mean, And clear, uh, helped to clear the snow. We had this steep hill cleared in no time to be able to get down to the main road. And that's all it takes is some people to do what you're doing. And I mean, I, you've cleared a, a good lot, but if everybody pitches in... That's right. If it doesn't get cleared and then it freezes on top of this tonight, yeah. it, it, you know, it'll make it more difficult for us to get down to the main road. And with it being such a steep hill, you know, if we could only get a snow plough down on a tractor or something like that, we'd be yeah. fine to get out to the main road. Well, it, look, it does look very nice, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Bye. I've just, I've almost got to the first shop nearest my house. Um, just have a word with the shopkeeper now. Are, are you managing to keep things going 
fairly much as normal? Yeah, it's been uh, going pretty well so far. It's okay. been busier than usual. Uh, we've had a lot more bread and milk being sold today and food. Just found my uh, mum's neighbours, who are a very nice family, who keep an eye on her. Fred, could you just tell me what you're doing? Just making a snowman. And you've been doing more useful things as well, I gather. Yes, we've been clearing the drive of uh, ice so our parents can come down as well. That's very kind of you. I hope, are you asking for a little kind of contribution to good causes for this? Uh, not as yet, but that's a very good idea. We <laughs> <laughs> definitely, that definitely have to do that. Yeah. Good. Well, so last question, is snow a good thing or a bad thing? It's good. Fantastic. It's amazing. <laughs> So, I finally got here, a couple of hours, must be more like four miles, I think, and uh, relief supplies for my mum. Mum, hi, it's the relief column. <laughs> I've brought you your supplies, I'm just doing a little bit for the Guardian, so you must tell me, how, how have you survived? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> good, and, and um, the Hudson's daughters have just been saying they think the snow is a good thing. Do you think it's a good thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, two different views. Martin Wainwright reporting. Well, many other people with elderly relatives will be taking steps today to make sure they're okay. Mervyn Kohler is special advisor for Age Concern Help the Aged. At the moment, the crisis point is let's deal with older people as we see them, possibly hemmed in in their own homes. It is important that we look to make sure that our older neighbours are safe, that they are warm and that they are fed. And I think that's a community responsibility. It's a responsibility for friends and neighbours. We can't actually rely on social services to do that kind of thing. They've got plenty of pressing things to do. And we need to actually just behave in a rather corporate way here. I mean, are you able to sort of put a statistic on, you know, how many people you think are at risk in when the weather goes below zero like this? We're talking in our older population of something like 8 million households of people over the age of 60. We're talking about 4 million over the age of 75 and a smaller number, about 2 and a bit million over the age of 80. And I think that that, which is probably a fifth of our older population, could be feeling very vulnerable and pretty cold at the moment. What about the benefits, the extra benefits that are available to older people uh, in the colder weather? I mean, what's available to them and, and are they actually claiming it? The major benefit in in these sorts of circumstances is the cold weather payment, which goes to people who are receiving means-tested benefits, such as pension credit, council tax benefit, um, housing benefit, and so on. And that is paid automatically for every week when the temperature is below zero as an average, and it's £25 at the moment. But what is worth reminding people about is if they are entitled to a means-tested benefit, which would qualify them for the cold weather payment, but they are not claiming that means-tested benefit. Obviously, they don't get the cold weather payment. And we know that about only 70% or so of people who are entitled to pension credit actually claim it. Only about 60% of people entitled to council tax benefit claim it. So there are a lot of potential losers out there who won't get anything because they just have not got themselves onto the right claimants lists. Mervyn Kohler from Age Concern Help the Aged and we've got the latest news at guardian.co.uk slash weather. Also on the Guardian's website today... I'm Deborah Hargreaves and I'm the business editor of The Guardian. It's quite an exciting day in the business world today with several of our big stories moving on. We've got the Icelandic president Olafur Grimsson voting against a bill that would have repaid £3.4 billion to savers in the collapsed bank iSave account. This could lead to another diplomatic row with Britain 
Britain. And then on our biggest story so far of the year, we've got another twist in the Cadbury Craft Nestle bid battle. Nestle has ruled itself out of bidding for Cadbury, bought Craft's frozen pizza division overnight, giving Craft a bit more cash to bid for Cadbury. Now, Warren Buffett, who's Craft's biggest shareholder, with 9.4% of the company, has voted against it, setting the cat among the pigeons there. We've also got a lovely High Street interactive graphic on our website where you can click on each shop for their latest trading update. For all of these business stories, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash business. A food revolution is needed in Britain, says the government. Hilary Benn, Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, has unveiled the government's strategy for the next 20 years. He said, we need to produce more food, we need to do it sustainably, and we need to make sure that what we eat safeguards our health. The Guardian's Felicity Lawrence is author of two books about the food business, Not on the Label and Eat Your Heart Out. So, what does she think of the government's plan? Well, I think in many ways it's very significant, although the uh, experts, particularly from NGOs, are already sort of saying they wish there was an awful lot more action in it. But for me, the significant thing is that for the first time, I think since the Second World War, this is a fully joined up, integrated policy for the whole of food across Whitehall. Food traditionally uh, has fallen between the stools of many, many departments. Uh, So you've got the Department of Health on one hand looking at the enormous impact of the kind of diet we eat on on diseases at a cost of about £7 billion a year to the NHS, but they operate in a silo on that. Uh, You've got the Department for Environment making recommendations about what we should do to protect the environment in terms of food and farming, but that in the past hasn't always connected with what's good for our health. Uh, And now we've got the impact of climate change, which is now in a different department, And all these things have to be integrated. Uh, You can't think about food in isolation. And this represents a really significant step for me in that government has done that. It is a strategy that is quite light on government intervention. And uh, that's slightly at odds for me with the... The message it's giving, which is that food is a critical issue, it will become even more critical. Our UK supply chain is quite vulnerable to sudden shocks, whether it's from global price spikes or from shortages of fuel, the price of oil, or attacks on infrastructure such as ports. Uh, But it doesn't then go on and say, and so what should we be doing? And what about this idea of a food ombudsman? Uh, Well, the Tories have stolen a march on on Labour with this because the Competition Commission uh, recommended two years ago that uh, as I was saying you know what this report and what the government hasn't done is tackle the power structures that really determine what we eat and take away much of our real choice Uh, and uh, there's this imbalance of of power between the supermarkets who are very concentrated and the suppliers whether they be food processors or packaging houses or farmers who don't have any power to stand up to them uh, and that that has put such a squeeze on suppliers uh, that many of them are going out of business. It will depend on how powerful such an ombudsman uh, is though, won't it? I mean, you know, whether they have the power to sort of, uh, you know, tell the supermarkets to... Well, I think the big issue is even if, with an independent ombudsman, whether you can remove the fear factor so that suppliers can actually come forward. Uh, and it, it's a very concentrated business so that if you're making a particular complaint against a supermarket, even if you're not named, the chances are that you can be identified. So I think that on its own 
isn't going to help. The, the real solution to, to an industry that's become too dominant is to break it up, uh, as George Monbiot argues in uh, his comment piece for us today. Uh, but I doubt whoever wins the election is going to uh, do that. Felicity Lawrence. Next we turn to reporter Adam Gabbert. The Guardian told him to wrap up warm and dispatched him to the zoo. It's minus three degrees here at London Zoo and it's today that they've chosen to count over 750 different species of animal. And uh, we're going round with the zookeepers as they count every single animal in the zoo. Why are you counting these animals today? Well, first of all, we have to do it by law because it's part of our zoo licence. And any zoo in the UK has to do that as part of their licence. But also for another really important reason for conservation. Now, we need to know not just how many animals we've got, but also who we've got. And then we will send all this information to a global animal database called ISIS, which then is used to manage the breeding of endangered species across the world zoos. Some of the species that we keep here at London Zoo are critically endangered in the wild and some extinct in the wild. So it's absolutely vital that we know not just how many we've got, but also who is breeding with who. And uh, are you expecting any surprises? Have any of the animals been at it like proverbial rabbits over this year? Uh, the rabbits have certainly been doing well, but also things like our lions, two Asian lion cubs this year, two new giant tortoises that came in. Um, so they've been relatively easy to count. Um, when you've got something like 7,500 invertebrates to count, yes, there might be an odd few surprises. We're here in the penguin enclosure. What kind of a year has it been for the penguins? Have we seen any new additions? Well, we're actually in the middle of the breeding season now for the penguins, so they're hatching chicks off in the last couple of days. Um, we've got four chicks at the moment, so fingers crossed and hopefully they'll thrive. And penguins, I mean, it's minus three today. They obviously are walking about fine. There's no special requirements needed for them. Uh, not really, although the main species we keep here are African black-footed penguins, so they're actually used to a warmer climate. Although around Africa the water's quite cold, so they are, used, they are very, very well insulated. Um, so yeah, it doesn't really bother them too much. How specific do you have to be with the counting process? You've got ants here, for example. Do you have to notch up every single ant? Well, we might start counting now and finish at the end of the year. Uh, to be honest, what we do with ants and some of the invertebrates is that we count colonies, although we good at, have a good estimate of how many ants are in the colony as well. But there's a little bit of cheating that goes on there. Adam Gabbert talking to zookeepers David Field and Tim Savage. And you can see some of those animals being counted at London Zoo at guardian.co.uk slash video. The most senior US military intelligence officer in Afghanistan has criticised the work of his agents in the country. In a report published by a Washington think tank, Major General Michael Flynn says he wants intelligence work to focus less on the Taliban and more on the Afghan people. It comes less than a week after seven CIA employees were killed in a suicide bomb attack on a base in eastern Afghanistan. Well, joining me are The Guardian's foreign affairs specialist Simon Tisdall and our security editor Richard Norton-Taylor. Richard, eight years after the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, this report paints a devastating picture of American intelligence. It's, it's almost a scandal really, because, and also full of irony. Here's the country which is uh, 
the area of the Britain's great game, the 19th century, and also of Kipling's Kim, but also where the uh, CIA was stuffing dollars and giving money to the Mujahideen during the time of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 80s. And the British MI6 were also there. The British have been trying to promote a kind of more sophisticated reconciliation policy by talking to Taliban people and insurgent leaders as much as they can do. And that policy has been, in a way, sabotaged by some Americans and uh, Karzai himself, the Afghan president. But the other, what I would say, is sort of, well, quite scandalous, maybe too strong a word, but to put it mildly, a disappointment, is that um, that's about every single military, British military commander who's been there had no intelligence at all. Simon, is, is this uh, British intelligence working the same as American? I mean, you know, how is the cooperation between the, the two countries? Well, one of the problems, as Richard has just uh, alluded to, is that um, they haven't entirely singing from the same song sheet. Um, they have different objectives, different methodology, and different ideas about how things should be done. I think the British have have long um, tried to make their voice heard, as they did in Iraq, about ways of handling post-invasion counterinsurgency. And only generally in the last two two years, maybe three years, with the advent, the rise of General Petraeus and some of the people around him, like some of the more enlightened American commanders, have they started looking at uh, what the British are saying about counterinsurgency methods and how it worked in other countries and how you do make a hearts and minds operation work and which how that bolsters your intelligence gathering capacity because by making making friends making contacts with the local population you create your, you create a pool of local sources um, and the americans have been quite slow to pick up on this in fact richard and others reported a few weeks ago that in in in, in southern iraq at one point uh, the, the american and british commanders were hardly on speaking terms because of the differences over intelligence gathering among other tactical and operational matters and approach towards insurgencies i mean mm. the, the british i mean it's sort of sad really to think about this i mean the british went into iraq with the americans as we know in 2003 and um the british started saying, we know much more about counterinsurgency than the americans we've done northern ireland and all that stuff malaya before that the americans go in there sort of firing all over the place and of course the americans learned very quickly actually partly could have general petraeus now the chief commander of the u.s and and re we radicalized, sort of tore up and wrote a whole new sort of field manual, they call it, for special forces as well as a, their main army. They were much better. They proved much better, much more sensible. And they don't seem to be doing it in Afghanistan. The difference between American and British in Afghanistan is a bit like my father used to say about the difference between young and old people. It's the... If the, uh, if the young only knew and if the old only could. That's a good point. I mean, it, it really is. And they have not learned. I mean, interestingly, the Chilcot inquiry into the invasion of Iraq and thereafter was one of their sort of issues they're looking at, are, uh, quote, lessons learned, unquote, and mainly about it, what the aftermath, actually, of the invasion of Iraq. And what we, we didn't know anything about the... Uh, I mean, intelligence may have been abused before we went into Iraq, but they didn't know much about it and didn't think about the effect of the invasion on, on Iraq and the different constituents groups, the Kurds, the Shias, the Sunnis, and so on, equally in Afghanistan. They have not learned the lessons from Iraq by being prepared, putting troops in numbers, getting proper security, giving the locals money, giving the local Afghans responsibility for, for, for their own little economic aid schemes. I mean, it sounds patronising. That's what you do, not through a corrupt carbal. I mean, they just haven't learned lessons. It's not just hindsight. It just seems to be extraordinary that the ignorance or, or the, uh, and for different reasons, the short-sightedness and inability to, uh, 
the big coalition forces and NATO allies to get a grip and do something properly. One interesting aspect of Flynn's report is how he suggests that American agents should adopt journalistic methods in gathering information. He actually talks about the way foreign correspondents yeah. go down at grassroots level and talk to local people and then collate their sources. Open source intelligence yeah. gathering. Yeah, yes. so maybe maybe there's a new career for people like me <laughs> and Richard advising the CIA <laughs> on how to gather up <laughs> intelligence on the field. Simon, Richard, many thanks. Francesca Panetta and Ian Chambers were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.